Hello, and welcome to Winning Retail. This episode features an interview with Warren Schulberg, award-winning journalist and consultant for the retailing and home furnishings industries. He is a regular contributor to The Robin Report, Forbes.com, The Business of Home, as well as his own blog, StupidBusiness.com. On this episode, Warren gives us his take on a wide range of contemporary retail issues, including, but not limited to, technological innovation, supply chain backlog, and why he dislikes the terms brick and mortar, omni-channel, and upholstery. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is presented by Dell Technologies and Intel. Together, we help you realize digital transformation across retail by driving IT innovation to better engage with today's connected consumer. Learn more at dellteknologies.com slash retail and intel.com slash retail. So please enjoy this interview between Warren Schulberg, award-winning journalist and your host, Tony Saldana. Hey, hello, and welcome to Winning Retail, the podcast for retail executives designed, of course, to help turn the biggest retail disruptions into the biggest strategic opportunities. My name, as always, is Tony Saldana, and I am excited because my guest today is Warren Schulberg, the uh, renowned business journalist and senior contributor to Forbes.com. Hey, welcome to the show, Warren. Hi, glad to be here. Hey, um, you've had an incredible career as a business journalist. Um, I know you're a regular contributor to Forbes.com as well as the Robin Report, and you worked on progressive business media and and many, many other medias, plus, of course, your own blog. Stupidbusiness.com, Warren, that's got to get my vote for the most interesting blog site name ever. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought it would get people's attention. Uh, heaven knows there's there's no shortage of stupid business out there. So um, I try to highlight uh, some companies that have, that have done some pretty stupid things. And um, again, plenty to write about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, hey, learning from... Um, Failures is really, really important to everybody. Um, now, Warren, there's this one thing I was going to check with you on. You know, you've you've had a great experience over a long career, and you've carved out a reputation not just for your expertise, but also for your straight talk. So, how did you get here? You know, how does one go from, I guess, a political science degree at Fairleigh Dickinson to becoming a retailing guru? Well, it uh, it's it certainly wasn't my life's ambition uh, way back when. You know, in fact, if you had told me that there were uh, at that point uh, hundreds of of business publications covering the retail field, I would have said you were crazy and no, thank you. But I realized at an early age I wasn't going to be a rock star and I wasn't going to be the center fielder for the New York Yankees. So I better find a career that I that I liked and. Um, Business journalism was it. Uh, I was editor of my college paper and decided that I liked business journalism. So started with some B2B publications uh, and kind of got skewed towards the retail and the, the home furnishings industry. And that's where I've spent most of my career. And again, I've been a reporter, an editor, a columnist. I've probably written thousands of opinion columns uh, for the publications, uh, both print and, and digital that I've worked for. And I guess the overriding theme was that if you're going to write an opinion column, you should have an opinion. So um, I always try to uh, take a point of view, 
often uh, I don't agree with it, but at least it uh, it gets it gets the conversation going. So I just like uh, comment on what's going on. You know, I, I fully agree. I, I think if you're writing an opinion piece, you really need to have an opinion. And vice versa. I mean, you know, when you're reporting the news, which I think, you know, nowadays people get more and more confused between what's an opinion piece versus, you know, what's a news piece. And, and you're extremely clear about what you are. Now, in the industry, specifically in retail, maybe even home furnishings, how has the industry changed over the last several decades that you've been covering them? Well, you know, a lot of people will use the word consolidation, and, and I don't think that that's quite the, the, the right word. I say uh, concentration, and and that's that business has gotten concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And that's not because companies have, have bought other companies or 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 sold. It, it it really is the big just keep getting bigger and bigger, and it's been a, a natural evolution, you know, again, uh, Probably back when you and I were starting our careers, there were a hundred department stores in the country, and every every metropolitan area had a local home improvement uh, chain and supermarkets, and uh, most of those are gone, and and they're just part of larger conglomerates um, that have concentrated their business. So I use that word concentration, and I think that's really the best way to describe it. Business is in fewer and fewer hands, and I don't think we're done yet. Where is this headed, though? I mean, uh, uh, arguably, if you see more and more concentration or consolidation, you know, you you eventually end up with monopolistic or similar type of behaviors. But we're not quite headed there, or do you think we are? No, I don't think we are. It used to be a rule of thumb that, that in any channel of distribution, there would be three big players. And that held true for quite some time. And then it went down to two. And that's kind of the stage we're in now. And I think you're going to end up with one. But again, the subsets are going to be more precisely defined. So, for instance, in in discounters, both Walmart and Target are going to um, exist and prosper and, and survive. But each of them uh, is go- increasingly going to be taking a different strategy. So I think that's what you'll see. And of course, the internet has become the great equalizer in that whatever was going on with physical stores, and I'll do an aside that um, I I hate the term brick and mortar. To me, it's the stupidest, the lamest way to describe um, physical stores, and I call them physical stores. And and, uh, I wish everybody would listen to me on that. So, but... uh, E-commerce has really opened up the playing field, and that's what's keeping those big giant companies honest. You know, if you had said five years ago that Walmart would be threatened by anybody, people would have said, you're crazy, Walmart's a $500 billion company, they dominate everything. And yet Amazon is kicking their butt right now on on e-commerce, and so we're not going to get to that ultimate monopoly stage e-commerce is going to is going to keep things lively and whatever comes after e-commerce yeah who knows but i i think your point is well taken which is maybe competitions coming from other forms right so instead of physical stores competing with each other now you're getting omnichannel and you know so on and so forth so uh, you know the, these channels are are kind of merging into each other and that's um, that's absolutely true now warren you've actually remarked that the business of retailing is your specialty, and I quote, boy, is it special. 
All right, Warren Albright, what is so special about retailing from a journalist's perspective? Well, again, you've got a lot of different players in there, and I guess you have that in any in any business sector. But um, you know, you can walk into a Bed Bath and Beyond store and see what they're doing, and 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 understand whether they've got a good operation, what they changed, what's going on, and uh, you can't do that with um, your old home at. At P and G, or or at IBM, or at General Motors, uh, uh, you really don't you don't have the access to observe what's going on with a company with your own eyes. And and to me, that's a great uh, uh, that's a great way to to study a business, and it's uh, it, it gives amazing insight. So that's why I like the retail business um, because you can just see with your own eyes what's going on, and they can't fool you. You know, I I love when companies put out these statements. You know, I, I just interviewed a company, and I'll I'll keep the name quiet. That talked about this great program that they were rolling out, and 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 the program sounded terrific. And and there were supposed to be all of this this in store displays and collateral and signage and materials. And I went into my local uh, version of this store, and there was nothing. You know, they they talk a good game, but um, if they're not executing it at the local level, and again, that's something that you can see for, for yourself, then they're not doing a great job. So I find that part of it fascinating. That is so true, because I think, um, you know, firstly, retail is something that everybody, every human being on earth can relate to because we all have experiences with it. And um, I learned a few weeks ago that, you know, fully a quarter of the uh, people in the U.S., of, of all jobs in the U.S., are, you know, in some shape or form, either retail-oriented or supporting retail. And, and so it touches, you know, a lot of lives from that perspective as well. Um, and, and of course, coming from my background, I fi find it fascinating as well, which is, um, you know, how we get together and, and chat over here. But uh, I have to say, I, I have to agree with you on that. And, and of course, your website, Retailer of the Week, is another great asset that I found. You call it highly subjective review of the business of retailing. And, uh, you know, you, you feature retailers each week. Now, this show is a technology one. And uh, so I have to ask you this question. Among all of the retailers that you know, who's doing something that's really innovative and original in technology right now? So I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of Williams-Sonoma. They, uh, they own Pottery Barn. They own West Elm. They obviously own Williams-Sonoma and a couple of other brands. I think that they've done the very best job of any retailer that I know of integrating that physical and that digital side. And they've done it in a number of ways. Um, they were one of the first uh, big national retail companies to synchronize their inventory. So if you were buying online and you were checking in stock, you weren't just going to a, you know, to a regional DC. If, if your local store had it, you could see that and Sonoma could tell you, yeah, we've got it and we'll ship it out of, out of the store down the block instead of the DC hundred miles away. And, and I think that they've done just a great job of that. And the inventory thing is, is just one level. They, um, I like their websites. 
I like the way that they cross merchandise across all their brands. So, you know, there are some big uh, companies that don't want you to know who else they own. And Sonoma is quite proud of it. So they'll say, yeah, if you're here shopping for uh, a can opener on the Williams Sonoma Kitchenware site, by the way, look what we've got on on West Elm. And and so I think they're really good at that. And um, to me, they are the poster child right now for Omnichannel, which is another awkward word that hopefully will come up with better. Um, but but they're really good at it. Uh, before the pandemic, they were doing about 55% of their business uh, uh, through e-commerce. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was that high already. Wow. Okay. Yep. And then over the last nine months, it's gotten even higher. It's 70%. Again, a lot of their stores were closed for three or four months. So it's not going to maintain at that 70% level, but they've been great at getting that balance of physical versus digital. So I like Sonoma a lot. I think just think they're a smart company and I don't pretend to be a, uh, a technocrat, but as a, uh, as a layman, they seem to be doing a lot of things right, technically. Well, that's what matters. At the end of the day, the consumer is boss. Um, and uh, hey, you know, you don't have to be a technologist to to know when somebody's doing it right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yep, yep. That, that that's absolutely spot on. Um, now, you also made a point recently to highlight Shopify, of course, the digital service provider that uh, enables uh, you know thousands of small businesses. Now, this reminded me of a discussion that I had recently on our show about whether retailers should switch to a software-as-a-service type model in order to chase you know, big tech companies like Amazon. Based on what you see in the retail industry, do companies like that, like Shopify with uh, you know, SaaS or software-as-a-service model, do they help? Yeah, I think if you're a small independent retailer, first off, you are terrified of Amazon. You want nothing to do with them. You don't want them snooping around anything that you're doing. And so they are they are the uh, the devil to a to, to a local retailer. And yet these independents are sitting around saying, "I know I've got to do uh, e-commerce, but." I don't have a tech guy, you know, my 17 year old high school son is, you know, is out playing uh, soccer and dating. So he can't build my website. What am I going to do? So Shopify is a great turnkey solution for these guys. It keeps them away from Amazon and provides an alternative. And anytime I run into uh, an independent retailer who says, I can't do e-commerce, uh, and uh, we're just going to have to get away. Uh, we're just going to have to get along without it. I, I just say, you know, you're crazy because you're willing to write off thirty percent of the of the potential market and growing. And sh- services like Shopify are a great turnkey solution. And yeah, they're gonna they're gonna take their cut, but um, but it's worth it because the alternative is is your is you're not going to stay in business. So I like Shopify a lot for these guys. And and uh, any of these small guys that are resisting it, I think are doing so at their own peril. I, I have to agree because I, I, I think the trends and, and all of the data, you know, justifies this uh, of, again, to use the awkward term omnichannel, but, you know, over a period of time, more and more of these transactions going online is is undeniable. And so, 
I, I don't think businesses have a choice. So um, now, um, just uh, 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 pivoting onto a slightly different topic, of course, your uh, favorite journalistic topic of home furnishings, you've called Chip and Joanna Gaines's Magnolia Market at the Silos the best new concept in years, and not just in home furnishings, but across the entire retail spectrum. Now, firstly, for our listeners that are not aware, can you share a little more about what the concept is? And then secondly, why would you consider it the best new concept? So um, if you're not familiar with Chip and Joanna Gaines, and there may be about 11 people in the United States that still aren't, uh, they're uh, a married couple. They live in Waco, Texas. They were uh, a couple that that just started doing what they called fixer-uppers. They would take houses, fix them up, and and either flip them or do them for a particular uh, homeowner. That transpired into a uh, HGTV network show called Fixer Upper, and they've done it for five or six uh, seasons, and um, they are now transitioning to a uh, Magnolia network model that HGTV is now owned by Discovery, which could be part of Warner Brothers by the time, by next Tuesday, uh, and um, it, it's going to be an umbrella for all all of those kind of shows. So uh, last fall, they opened the Magnolia Market at the Silos. Bit of a convoluted name, but essentially, it's about 10 different stores selling both Magnolia-branded merchandise, and that's home furnishings and kitchenware and things like that, and other products, apparel, jewelry, men's doodads. And they put in a restaurant, and they put in a bakery, and they put in a coffee shop. And the complex is is a series of individual buildings kind of around a, a country green. It's really what I'm calling uh, retail uh, as campus, because rather than building one big building, they've got these individual buildings. And it's a fascinating concept. Um, they've got uh, they've got picnic space and they've got a couple of food trucks and they've got a little a little playing field. They even have a church, and and if you know the Gaines, they are observant in their religion. They've been very good about not uh, commercializing it and not playing it out in their in their appearance. But their faith is a big part of, of their story. So they've got a church there too, and it's just it's it's a it's a day trip. You go there and you could hang around uh, for the day, if not longer. They they are also building, um, uh, they've got a and b and I understand they're expanding their lodging. So they don't want you just for the day, they want you overnight. So interesting concept, you know, it's the antithesis of, of super centers and combo stores and mega marts, but it just has a great vibe. And if you look at it, it's um, um, RH, uh, which used to be called Restoration Hardware, is doing something similar up in Napa. They've got a complex of, of four different uh, retail uh, buildings, and I think I think two of them are stores and two of them are restaurants, and they're kind of also set up like a campus. So this concept, I think, is fascinating, and I think we're going to see a lot more of this uh, going forward. It's just it's it, it's a different way to engage the shopper, and it's an experience that obviously can't be replicated online. That is true, and and that's really what um, I like about them because 
you know, this is an industry that's evolving, you know, with, with, with the times, because you're right, technology is disrupting the way the big shopping malls used to work. And so, you know, how do you keep building on the consumer experience in a non-digital manner? And, and so I think what Chip and Joanna Gaines have done is an evolution in that particular direction. And, and of course, it plays to a certain audience and, you know, it plays to a certain type of experience. But um, I agree with you. I found that fascinating as well. Um, now, you know, speaking of these big retailer stores or retailer experiences, um, the implication of all of this is as store formats change, right? So, you know, go from big stores to small stores, from department type, you know, uh, formats to other formats. The implication is that the underlying supply chain needs to be much, much more agile, right? And at the same time, the industry is being hit with COVID, which is causing all kinds of supply chain issues. You've talked in the past about supply chain backlog. Um, and of course, trucking and other issues in the U.S. has certainly added to that issue. What do you think is happening at a macro level to supply chains? And what should the smart retailer do to address that? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a wonderful question that I don't have a clue what they should do. <laughs> you know, the fix is in. Uh, I, and again, I know the home business better than I know a, a apparel or footwear or, or or CPG. But a lot of the issues are the same regardless of what it is, which is that this stuff is imported. And, um, you know, for instance, in, in the home business, virtually anything that has a plug is coming out of China. And so there's no other place to get that. So if China is backed up because of shutdown factories, politics, tariffs, container ship shortages, there's not much you can do about it. Um, you know, I talked to a, uh, a furniture company that does um, upholstered furniture, what uh, what regular people call couches, but what uh, what the industry refuses to call uh, uh, couches and calls upholstery. And they've got a factory in the U.S., and they are doing gangbusters because their competitors who are bringing products in from China or Vietnam uh, or Malaysia can't get anything. So in some sectors, there is an alternative, even though you're probably going to pay for it. Um, but in a lot of a areas, uh, there's no place else to go. You know, the, the Trump tariffs, um, were designed to, uh, to both punish, uh, China and theoretically to restart domestic manufacturing. And frankly, it really hasn't done either. It ended up doing neither one of those things. Some of China's export business is down, but it's really just shifted and it's not shifted to U.S. production. That sofa factory I talked about has not put on more workers, has not put on more more assembly lines. Uh, they're just not able to do that. What's happened is that production moved to Vietnam or Malaysia or, or Indonesia. And so the retailers who are, who are on the wrong end of this supply chain really don't have a lot of options. Um, and uh, sadly, uh, when I ask people, okay, so what's going to happen that's going to fix this? They all say that it's not going to be that supply is going to increase, but the demand is going to decrease. So 
you know, be careful what you wish for, because uh, the solution to the supply chain mess is that uh, people are 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 gonna are gonna there's gonna be less demand for this stuff as America gets back out to restaurants and movie theaters and baseball games. So um, there's not a, a, a an easy answer for supply chain. Yeah, and and that's that's absolutely um, true. I suspect of most industry supply chain, you know. Supply and demand in a global economy is, is very, very hard to control, um, especially if you target one or two countries, you know, it, it's just whack-a-mole. However, for, you know, manufacturers in the West and in the developing world, to what extent does technology play a role to counterbalance the, you know, the lower manufacturing costs in developing regions? So, again, a lot depends on the product sector. You know, one of the industries I, I cover is uh, the home textiles industry, which is sheets and towels and curtains. And that industry has a joke that uh, unfortunately is not so funny, is that the greatest technological advancement in the history of the sheet business was the invention of the fitted sheet. So, um, you know, this is not a technology-driven uh, uh, field. So, Furniture production still requires a lot of a lot of labor and a lot of manual operations. Um, where you are seeing it is in the electronics field, so toasters and blenders and lamps and those kind of things. Technology is playing a bigger and bigger role in that, but. These are still pretty labor-intensive fields. You know, if you look at the the garment industry, and and that's always the industry that seems to go to low labor markets first. And it was the first one to to Hong Kong, and then to Taiwan, and then to China, and you know now India and Bangladesh, and it's starting to go into Africa now. This is because it's still labor intensive. So you know, I wish I could say that uh, that technology is going to save the day on this stuff, but it's just not. Um, the investment that's necessary to build a a highly automated facility. It's hard to get that return on an investment with the way prices of these products are. Yes. Now, that's um, you make a really good point because, um, you know, we've talked about the two ends of the supply chain um, over the last few minutes. We've talked about Chip and Joanna Gaines kind of working it from a sales retailing and how do you become more distinctive there. And that's doing extremely well. And then we've you know, talked about the, the origination point of the supply chain, where if you know, this is labor intensive, then there's only so much you can do in terms of innovating the fitted sheet, so to speak, right? So, so I think your point is well taken, which is you have to kind of understand where your competitive advantage levers lie. There are some that are going to be technology intensive. You know, fast fashion in the in the the world of fashion is doing a pretty good job of you know putting all of their data together so that you can go from creating a new design, you know, of a a jacket all the way through actually having that available in stores in like 10 days now. And that's because the process of actually stitching some of that has been standardized and to the point that you can actually do that at volume. But, you know, when you're actually down to labor-intensive stuff, it really doesn't matter because there's only so much you can do. The, the, the human person is a marvel of nature, um, and, you know, you're not going to be able to replace that anytime soon. 
So I think your point is well taken. You know, at the root of all of this is a real strong understanding of where is the distinctiveness come for your business um, and where it comes with actually focusing on the consumer, understanding how to meet their needs, whether they are articulated or unarticulated, you will win. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that I see, which is at the root of this, what was called the retail apocalypse. You know, a lot of the stores that went under were because I thought that maybe some of those management kind of lost their way. They focused on strategies that were just not relevant for the times. Um, you've seen this, of course, unfold over a period of you know several decades. Um, what's your take? Why have retailers succeeded or failed um, over the last several decades? Well, you know, there are some retailers that are just too dumb to live. They they um, <laughs> they they just weren't paying attention. They didn't have good strategies. Um, and uh, they said, this is the way we did it last year, and this is how we're going to do it this year. And yeah, again, I'm yeah. going to try to be kind here and, uh, and not name <laughs> names. Um, obviously, the, the role of private equity and debt has had a huge impact on some of these guys who just um, – retail just does not throw off a lot of cash. And you can't service those those two $3 billion debt levels – with with a retail business and particularly you couldn't do it this past year if your stores were closed and you didn't have a uh, a sustainable uh, uh, digital business and so that's been a big factor you know and then you've had guys and I will name a you know I will name somebody here which is um, uh, the incredible shrinking Sears operation which um, uh, all along has never been about building a retail business, it's been about monetizing that business. And um, from the very start, when uh, Eddie Lampert uh, took over Sears and Kmart, it was always about how do I get money out of that business? And, um, you know, he fooled a lot of people for a, a long, long time about being the next Warren Buffett and, and, and all of this nonsense. And, um, you know, that was never, never the never the plan. You know, I'm not sure a lot of people realize, but there are about 60 Sears and Kmart stores left in the country right now. Oh, that is sad. Is, that's it? That's it. Six. Wow. Six zero. There's about 40 Sears stores left and about 20 Kmart stores, and give or take five or 10, but but that's about it. So um, uh, this was a company that at its peak had 3,500 stores, even as recently as three years ago had 1,800 stores. So um, those were once great retail names, and um, they were they were not run as retail businesses. You know, capital investment was 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 putting a new light bulb in uh, over over the checkout counter. That was uh, that was their capex budget. So there's been a variety of reasons, and obviously, as many people have said, I, I certainly don't take credit for this. The pandemic just sped up that process, and and all these retailers that were on the brink just just faltered um, and went out of business. Yeah, no, you, you you're so right, and 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 these were. I mean, Sears and Kmart, I mean, yeah, the, the, these were stores that thrived for generations, generations. Um, I, I, um, I, I strongly believe that the, the reason why, you know, many of these stores were affected by the retail apocalypse is because they just simply lost sight of 
the consumer. The consumer is, as I said earlier, his boss. You really, really cannot take the eye off the consumer. Uh, and certainly you cannot, um, you know, uh, take the gaze off the consumer and put it on regulators or financial machinations. And that's one of the things that I fear, you know, as the pandemic hopefully winds its way down, people are going to fall into that particular trap because the CDC in the U.S. has just lifted mask mandates for vaccinated people. And uh, you've made a point, though, which I agree with a lot, which is smart businesses will listen to their customers rather than their regulators. So can you expand a little more on that? You know, what is it that uh, you are warning retailers about? Well, and I think listening to your customers, obviously, is is a good thing in a lot of areas. But with, with masks, it works both ways. So if you're a, a high-end luxury store in Manhattan and your customer base is still very focused on on health and 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 safety you're going to keep requiring masks um on the other side of it if you're if you're Walmart you've got a very different demographic and you've got a lot of customers that never liked masks to begin with you're going to say okay it's optional now and i'm going to cut the CDC some slack here and say that these guys are scientists and that the decisions being made now are scientific ones, not political ones. And so if they're saying we don't need masks, then that's okay. Um, a year ago, that was a very different story. So um, if the CDC says no masks, then I support Walmart saying, okay, they're not required here anymore. So, um, but if I'm a restaurant you know, I think even if I'm not requiring my customers to wear masks, I think there's a um, it sends a certain signal if the, if the wait staff continues to to have masks on. That 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 is absolutely spot on. I I, I think. Um, yep, yep. You know, one of the mistakes that the world has made uh, during the pandemic is um, to look for simple answers and simple mandates and. And I think if there's one thing we should have learned during this pandemic, it's like you have to use common sense uh, on top of regulations. And, and, and I think you just highlighted that brilliantly. Um, excellent. Hey, um, Warren Schulberg, we're now at the point in our show where we're trying to get past the, um, you know, the excellence in uh, retailing and, and home goods and journalism and get to the person behind that expertise. Um, so what I'm going to do is ask you a few more personal type questions. Are you ready for it? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm game. Uh, uh, you know, I may, uh, I may have a no comment in there, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how personal. All right, let's see. Let's see. Okay, what's the best thing that you've bought recently? So um, I... Um, you know, I'm going to hold up this pencil. There's a pencil brand called Blackwing that was an old-time brand that uh, they've resurrected. And these guys are doing a great job of romancing pencils. Now, I'm a writer, so I like pens and pencils. But uh, but even people who aren't, they come out with limited editions and, and, and they put a story behind them. This one that I just purchased is is uh, is an ode to to Woody Guthrie, and uh, you know it's got an, it's got a an, an open road on it, and it's a bit of a stretch, but they um, uh, I love this pencil, and and I paid a ridiculous amount of money for it, uh, 
and I had to go out and buy a pencil sharpener because God knows the last time I had to sharpen a pencil. Um, but I think companies like Blackwing are doing great stuff, and I I like uh, this is this is the best thing I bought recently. And um, and again, I think it's a great way for other companies to look at 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 marketing. That's a great example of you know personalization yeah. um, and and product innovation. Um, if you can innovate in the pencil space, um, you know you can certainly innovate in fitted sheets. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I don't know how many other people will pay what I paid for this pencil, but but um, I bet you there's a lot more than either one of us uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, all right. Let's ask you this. What's your favorite subscription service? So I'm not a big um, subscription uh, fan because I, um, while I'm very loyal to some brands in some areas, I jump around in a lot of other things. And um, as just one person, I, I, I don't go through a lot of stuff. But um, the subscription that I, I cannot live without is, uh, is my Ely espresso, uh, capsules. Um, uh, oh, yeah. so, um, I've been a, a subscriber to that, uh, probably for 10 years. And, um, and I know when I open that last package and I'm getting down to the last couple of espresso pods, I know that there's another box coming on my doorstep any day now uh, that will re relive it and 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 revitalize my inventory. So uh, Ely does a good job. Um, I'm um, I'm uh, a little skeptical of some of the other ones. You know, I know automobile companies have have, have tried this. Uh, Cadillac and Porsche have tried this, and and um, I, I just. Um, I'm not sure that it's the best business model for for very many uh, consumer product categories. It would be a great um, subscription model for you know something that you can't do without. Um, yeah. And like you, you know, I I, I like my coffee. Um, yeah. Coffee, <laughs> chocolate, you know, any of those. Um, Nutella. <laughs> yeah. That okay. Are, you know, are, um, are, are essential foods um, in the pyramid. Yeah, you know, Nutella. Would definitely make yeah. a good subscription. Maybe I'll look into an, a Nutella subscription. That That's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe one more. Sure. Um, if you could be sponsored by one brand, um, what brand would that be? And more importantly, why? So I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, give a real obvious one here which is Apple. Uh, you know, I think Apple does so many things right. And uh, from a product development standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, from uh, from just creating a marketplace um, and and managing that. Uh, and, and even from an, an aesthetic viewpoint, I just think Apple is a great brand. I bought my first Mac in 1986, and and have and have been on Macs ever since. And um, they just they're just a good company. Um, I wish I had bought Apple stock instead of instead of a Mac in 1986. But uh, but unfortunately, I, I uh, us poor journalists don't uh, don't have a lot of disposable income. So, uh, um, but I think Apple is just a great brand. Does a lot of things right. Um, you know they catch some flack from from now every now and then about some of their social practices and and what they're doing in China and uh, um, and God knows how much money they make. Uh, 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 but I think 
I think Apple's a great brand and a great company. And um, I'd like to see a whole lot more companies run like Apple. They, they certainly, you know, have uh, held for the last several decades, you know, uh, among the highest tiers of companies that innovate, yep. that are consumer focused. And, you know, for the tech industry, that changes so frequently, I think, what they have done, which is to establish a drumbeat of expectations and, you know, and keep moving the bar higher so that consumers are willing to pay more and more and more for more and more and more capabilities. I, I, I think that's a, yeah. that's a, it, it takes a lot of work um, in an area that, you know, could yeah. be very easily commoditized. I mean, cell phones have been commoditized, but not the iPhone, um, not yet anyway, so... I, I think that's a yeah. Every time Tim Tim Cook rolls out a new one, I I, I hit the buy button. So I'm I'm hopelessly addicted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you for sharing. Uh, you know, a much more personal side of yourself, Warren. And uh, but before we go, um, we have to have you talk to the aspiring Warren Scholbergs out there, and uh, we need to have you kind of share your advice for all of the folks out there who want to be where you are, which is a trusted opinion leader in retail journalism, what advice would you give them? Well, particularly in, in the field that I cover, um, you've got to go out and see the stores. Um, if you don't, if you're just sitting on, on your computer or your phone all day, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. And so you've got to get out and see things and, and, and talk to people. Um, you know, in the industry that I work in, a lot of the trade shows were, were canceled over the last 12 months and a lot of the conferences and conventions. And as soon as they started up again, um, again, with, with health and safety precautions, I've started going to them because I think just you need to get out and talk to people and see things and, 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 and get in conversations. Uh, and to me, that's the most important thing is, you know, it's kind of on the ground knowledge of what's going on. Um, and just, just being out there. So, you know, that's not, that's not always possible, you know, in certain other business disciplines, but if it is critical to do it and just keep talking, just keep talking to people, uh, you know, it's called networking, but I call it talking to people, you know, so I think that's, that's what you got to do. It's um it's it's a consistent message, Warren, that you've shared with us uh, throughout the show. Um, you know, get to know your consumers, get to know your customers, go out there, talk to people. Um, you know, this is an industry that is changing in front of our very eyes. Uh, technology is disrupting it. Um, there are completely new business models. And then there are new formats, which you've also described, that are a hybrid of all of these. And the only way the only surefire way to win during these disruptive times is to stay in touch with the people that matter the most, your customers. So, hey, um, you know, I, I, I can't think of better advice for this industry. Thank you so much, Warren. I really did enjoy uh, talking with you. And uh, I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of this as well. So um, before we let you go, thank you very much again. Well, thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. Um, I always, uh, I, I'm always intrigued, uh, no matter what side of the microphone uh, of this process I'm on. Obviously, I, I'm, I'm not bashful about my opinions, but I'm always curious of, of what kind of questions are being asked and what's, what's important to other people. So I always learn a lot, too. So thank you for, uh, for being a good interviewer, Tony. Thank you. 
Oh, that's very nice. All right. Well, um, we look forward to, uh, you know, continuing to keep tabs on uh, your opinions, Warren. Always appreciate it. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, hey, um, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe at www.winningretailpodcast.com. And uh, until we meet next time, remember, keep reinventing retail. Thank you again for listening to Winning Retail. To find more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter, go to winningretailpodcast.com.